0: Hey everybody, this is going to be episode 5 of the Anxious Mammal Podcast, and today we're going to be talking about Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder, or ADHD. We're going to talk about a little bit about what ADHD really is, what it looks like truly, not just what it says in the DSM. There's actually more to ADHD than is outlined in the DSM. It really is a diagnosis that could benefit from being updated. Also talk about how it gets misdiagnosed often and can look like a couple other diagnoses or share some similar symptoms. Stick around and I will try and clarify ADHD for you as best I can. All right, so ADHD. ADHD is actually a very common disorder, we do find that even though many people feel that it is overdiagnosed, it is true that it can be overmedicated in children especially because they can be hyperactive, be inattentive, have some of those symptoms, quote unquote, that we see typically in ADHD and be too quick to be medicated just for being children. The diagnosis itself, however, is not actually overdiagnosed in my opinion. It's probably underdiagnosed. Now the diagnosis rate is higher in America than it is in any other country. So what I wanna start with is just explaining the diagnosis of ADHD as defined in the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, so the DSM-5. There are three main types of ADHD. There is the inattentive type, there is the hyperactivity type, and there is the mixed type, which includes um, substantial pieces of both. So for inattentive, according to the criteria in the DSM, there needs to be six or more of the following that have persisted for six or more months. And they are careless mistakes or overlooking details, difficulty sustaining attention, um, appearing not to listen, especially when spoken to directly, difficulty following through with tasks or instructions, difficulty organizing, avoiding difficult tasks if they require sustained attention, losing items, and forgetting things often. So that is for the criteria to meet inattentive type. To meet hyperactivity type, hyperactivity or impulsivity, you need, again, six or more of the following that have persisted for six or more months. obviously can you know they can't be consistent with a developmental level or n- other diagnosis that would better identify these symptoms so for hyperactivity fidgets or squirms often difficulty staying in their seat run or climb in inappropriate settings struggle to engage in activities uh, leisure activities quietly often can feel like they're driven by a motor talk excessively and at length blurt out answers and interrupt other people Uh, difficulty waiting in line or waiting their turn and interrupts or intrudes upon others often so mixture would include a combination of these two this is determined usually through meeting with a psychologist who can do the testing and using approved and accepted testing procedures and they need to have an onset of these symptoms before age 12 and they need to present with these symptoms in two or more settings Okay, number one, the symptoms do not have to be around before the age of 12. I do not like that that is a criteria. There are people who can show symptoms after the age of 12 and into adulthood even. There is a common misconception that you lose ADHD when you turn 25, 26 or so and up. This is not true. You can be any age and have ADHD. Now, what can happen is around the age of 25, symptoms can decrease for the individual significantly, a little bit, or even almost completely. This is because ADHD is a brain developmental disorder. So you have the frontal lobe, the middle part of the brain and the hind brain for purposes of this conversation. The frontal lobe is gonna be considered logic and foresight. The middle brain is going to be considered emotion and memory is in there. A lot of memory stuff's in there and the hind brain is going to be the animal brain. So that's the automatic processes, the things that kind of function without your control. So when you have ADHD, the frontal lobe with the logic and foresight does not develop at the pace that it should. And it does not keep up with the development of the middle brain, which is emotional. Therefore, It is common for people with ADHD to experience emotional dysregulation because the logic is less available to have that appropriate balance between logic and emotion. We're going to talk about that some more in a second. But the point of this is, once you get around the age of 25, 26, the brain has caught up. Basically, it's become fully developed. It can still develop and change, but as far as the brain developing it, it has hit a point where the frontal lobe now catches up And the brain is completely all parts are now developed at what, you know, we'll just say hundred percent. So the symptoms can begin to decrease because now the logic and emotional abilities of the brain are balanced for the individual. Going back to the emotion piece. This is one of the other things I do not like about the criteria outlined in the DSM. There is no mention of an emotional piece. I know for me personally the biggest piece is the emotional piece the impulsivity of the emotions the emotions can go from zero to a hundred and the individual with adhd will be aware that this is occurring but they will almost have like a compulsion to complete this emotional process before they can then immediately damage control for what may have occurred because of it now this is a mixture of the impulsivity which is mentioned But this is also an emotional impulsivity, which is a very specific thing that needs to be understood with people with ADHD. They can get very angry very fast, frustrated very fast. They can get very excited very fast, very sad very fast. So they can have these emotional kind of bursts. This is another reason why it is often common to see ADHD misdiagnosed as something like bipolar, because people can have these emotional ups and downs. They're not really ups and downs, they're just spikes of I'm excited, I'm sad, and you can go in all kinds of orders, sad, angry, sad. And this can mimic symptoms of bipolar if someone is observing this information in short-term basis or maybe just the way that the client is disclosing it to the person that is diagnosing. The other thing is that it needs to be present in two or more settings. I, I do agree with this piece. Of, this is absolutely true. This is something that does not just impact somebody in one setting. That would be more of a specific issue that could be a phobia or it could be a trauma. There's all kinds of things that could mimic symptoms of ADHD. That's the official diagnosis of DSM mixed with my opinion, having it as well as just working with it professionally. So. ADHD is a top-down disorder, which means the issue is with the frontal lobe. So it is a brain disorder first. And then if you were talking about a bottom-up, we're talking about going through the body first to the brain. So ADHD is a top-down. It is an executive functioning issue. It is a neurodevelopmental brain disorder. So it changes as you get older due to the neuroplasticity of the brain. And as you challenge behaviors by using external behavior modification techniques, you're laying down tissue in the brain. You're literally sprouting dendrites, which are the things in the brain that basically can receive neurotransmitters. You're creating a new pathway. And so that's why behavior modification can be very useful and external intervention techniques are very useful for individuals with ADHD. And we'll talk about some of those specifically later. It develops in childhood pretty much most always, and it is there in childhood always. It's just that when I say the symptoms don't have to be there before the age of 12, sometimes there can be other things going on or there can be other mechanisms in play to where the symptoms can't be recognized necessarily before the age of 12, which is why having to have symptoms before the age of 12 as a diagnostic criteria is not one that I really agree with. As high as 60 to 80% of people with ADHD will continue to meet criteria when they move into adulthood, depending on the type that they have. So you can see that it does not go away. It is not a childhood disorder. 60 to 80% continue to meet the criteria of the DSM. So even more than that still have symptoms, but 60 to 80% meet the actual criteria within the diagnostic manual. It is an issue between ability and performance. Which means the individual has the ability to do things at 100, but they can only seem to perform at 80 and then in another area at 65 and another area 90. This is not laziness. This is not willpower. The individual has the ability and will even maybe have the desire, but they cannot get the motivation or they cannot seem to access the performance level that they should. It is not uncommon to see people with ADHD later in their life in careers that to others around them see well below what they believe the person should be doing because of their abilities, their intelligence, things like that. And it's because the person may have the ability, but they aren't performing to their level of ability. And so you're rated on what you you perform, not what you have the potential to perform. I did mention briefly that there are other diagnoses or issues that can be misdiagnosed as ADHD or ADHD can be misdiagnosed as those. So these are ADHD lookalikes. These are also things, not just diagnoses, but these are also, there's also things that you want to look at with the individual before you determine if they have ADHD because it may be short-term thing or a situational thing. So one thing that I wanna ask when I work with somebody who I think may have ADHD is, what does the home look like? The home can cause disorganization, distraction, lack of motivation. One thing is to say, do the symptoms decrease in other settings? So here comes the two or more settings criteria. The person should have these symptoms prominent within two or more settings. So if it's only in the home, that's a pretty key flag there to look at. Now also, does the client have a history of active cocaine or stimulant use? Cocaine addiction, actually mimics many of the ADHD symptoms and drug use is not uncommon for individuals with ADHD one of the behaviors that are common with ADHD is to seek stimulation thrill seeking novel experiences exciting experiences new experiences to maintain that attention also cocaine chemical structure of cocaine it can be very effective with many individuals at helping deal with the symptoms of ADHD. So many of the medications that are given for ADHD are stimulants, and they help by giving the individual the ability to focus by balance, you know, messing with dopamine levels and things like that. Well, cocaine can do the same thing, and so people with ADHD may seek it as an exciting thing and then continue to use it because they feel more quote-unquote normal or able to focus or less foggy when they use it. One of the biggest important things when you're looking at ADHD is to look at trauma. Is there extensive trauma? Both trauma and ADHD are heavily due to frontal lobe issues. So the ability of the frontal lobe is lacking in inhibiting the more impulsive drives of that middle brain emotion, that limbic system. In ADHD, it's because the frontal lobe is still developing and it's not developing at the rate it should until it catches up. In trauma, it is because the limbic system and the amygdala, which is the fear center or part of the fear center looking for danger, becomes hypervigilant. It becomes oversensitive to danger and it becomes so overwhelming and powerful and loud that it just overrides the logic of the frontal lobe. So they do it for different reasons, but they can result in the same experience. Also, we got to check for markers for bipolar, because again, bipolar and ADHD are both difficult disorders to diagnose, and they often get misdiagnosed. They can mimic each other. Another is, is there a history of fibromyalgia? So there was a study in 2017 that found almost 50% of individuals with fibromyalgia also meet the criteria for ADHD. Last couple things are just how is the client sleeping, Um, Because this could be a temporary issue, so you want to look at history, obviously, is very important. And have they recently experienced any kind of significant life changes that can cause chaos and unpredictability in their life? There are some common co-occurring issues that arise with ADHD, which I have mentioned some. Substance use. Those with ADHD tend to experiment with drugs and alcohol sooner because they're thrill-seeking they are more likely to binge use, so to use in extreme amounts, because once they start using, and we're keeping addiction separate for this, once they start using the drug, the alcohol, it feels exciting and new and novel and different, and so they therefore have a hard time due to their impulsivity with knowing when to stop. So they will use or drink to excess in those moments. Even if they don't become someone who would identify as an addict, they can be a problem drinker or a problem user there is a high turnover in jobs relationships and things like that so another key marker that we can look for for diagnosing someone with adhd is that the individuals will tend to change jobs more often because they get bored it gets redundant or they may have issues keeping attention because of the redundancy and get fired or have to move on and they often have a history of losing friends and relationships because people frankly get tired of dealing with a lot of the symptoms of ADHD you know you're not paying attention to me you don't seem to care you thought about doing it but you didn't do it you interrupt me all the time you're unpredictable you forget things etc as we mentioned they often get misdiagnosed Uh, they might be diagnosed with depression and or social anxiety or bipolar due to the way that they present but anxiety social anxiety and depression are often symptoms of ADHD now, someone can have ADHD and also meet criteria to be diagnosed with depression or anxiety or whatever, but depression and anxiety are common symptoms of ADHD. Depression can result as frustration. The individual is frustrated that they cannot perform at the ability they know they have. And so this causes them to become kind of down on themselves, feel like they're not good enough, et cetera. The anxiety can be due to the restlessness, or the constant thoughts and racing thoughts and increased physical activity that causes increased heart rate and all that other stuff. So you get the physical anxiety. There's a lack of time orientation. So those with ADHD, they're unable to see into the future after a certain period of time for planning and memory. This is why they have to rely a lot on calendars and clocks and alarms if they want to remember things in the future. Most people are able to orient one, two, three or more months into the future, but even orienting to a day later or a week later can be difficult to somebody with ADHD, and they will have a hard time holding this in their brain. Those with ADHD can often be seen as selfish. They struggle to take the perspective of other people, and it's a deficit. It's not a personality flaw. It's not that they don't want to. It's that they may struggle with the ability to do so. So, Those with ADHD are at higher risk of developing other mental health disorders, like we said the substance use, self-esteem issues, and depression. So the statistics are anywhere between 25 to 45% of people with ADHD will develop conduct problems or antisocial behaviors. Between 25 to 40% will develop learning disability. Up to 25% will develop low self-esteem and depression. 10 to 25% will develop substance use disorders, and 5 to 10% will go on to develop more serious disorders like major depression or bipolar. Now I wanna talk to you about some common myths and understandings. One myth, ADHD doesn't exist. Yes, there are people who actually believe that. There are more than 100,000 science journal articles peer reviewed and accepted that Support the existence of ADHD with references that go as far back as 1775. Neuroimaging shows evidence that ADHD is associated with impairment to the prefrontal cortex, the frontal lobe. So there is neurobiological evidence, and there is many other disciplines in the mental health field that have evidence in over a hundred thousand different journal articles supporting the existence of ADHD. It very much exists. Anybody who says that it doesn't, absolutely grossly incorrect. Another myth: ADHD is an excuse, often for laziness. ADHD is partly due to chemical imbalances within the brain. It's not due to voluntary control or willpower. Those with ADHD are actually able to hyperfocus on things that interest them. See, the normal brain has mechanisms in place that will dilute or keep out any kind of information that is not important in a moment. So the brain automatically helps the individual choose where their attention should be. With ADHD, the individual has to choose where to put their attention at every single moment. It is exhausting and it is difficult. Another myth which we did mention already is children grow out of ADHD. Some may not notice symptoms until the age of 21 to 27. And anywhere from 60 to 80% of people will see ADHD symptoms persist throughout their life. Another myth is ADHD medications are addictive. Therapeutic use, correct use of stimulant medications have actually been shown to prevent addiction. So when you look at the research, when you look at individuals who are prescribed stimulant medications and use them as prescribed, it actually has been shown to prevent addiction. Studies from the University of California and out of Sweden and other places confirm this. There's millions of healthcare claims that you can find that are backed up by journal evidence showing that that is a misconception. Anything can be addictive if the person has an addictive personality. Drugs, gambling, sex, food, it doesn't matter. It's not the item itself that's doing it. ADHD is overdiagnosed. That is the other misconception. The most respected peer reviews put the prevalence of ADHD at about 7%. But many countries only diagnose about 05 to 2%. So it is statistically underdiagnosed. Research shows that more than 50% of children with ADHD in Europe have never even been diagnosed. So it is not overdiagnosed. Is it overmedicated? Possibly. But it is not overdiagnosed. It is underdiagnosed. Let's talk about medication options. The main go-to at first is usually stimulants. So in clinical terms for ADHD, a stimulant is dopaminergic, which means it impacts the dopamine receptors. These are the medications you will commonly hear the names. Adderall is one of the big ones and Ritalin. There's also Concerta, Dexedrine, Focalin, Vyvanse, and more. I've had psychiatrists or doctors mention, like, how do you respond to coffee? Things like that. Well, coffee may be helpful for some people, but it's not dopaminergic. Coffee actually splits into two different compounds, and it targets different receptors than dopaminergic medications do. So coffee is not a substitute for ADHD medication if it is needed. The risks of the stimulants, appetite suppression. You can have delayed sleep onset, depending on the dosage that you take and when you take it. It can increase irritability, sometimes as a short-term side effect or long-term, and it can result in ticks if taken for long periods of time. Now, if stimulants are not working, and sometimes doctors will skip that and go to this category, but then we move to non-stimulants. Only a handful of medications are actually approved by the FDA to treat ADHD that are non-stimulants. These are Stratera, which is automoxetine, guanfacine, which is often known as intuni and clonidine, which is often known as capve. Other medications that might be prescribed also could be bupropion or there's one called Quelbri. And then sometimes they will use, uh, doctors will use off-label options. When a typical medication fails uh, to work for the individual with ADHD, but they still feel that medication is a necessity, then often they will turn to something like Welbutrin. That's pretty much the most common one that they'll try. Close to about 80% of people with ADHD will require medication for at least a period of time. Lastly, you have holistic. Some research that exists um, and shows that there are actual benefits for holistic ingredients. Omegas. So those with ADHD have been shown to have lower levels of omega-3 in their body and this can impact brain function and therefore supplementing omegas can be very useful. Iron, iron is needed to make dopamine. Dopamine levels are low often with ADHD. Zinc is important, it can help regulate dopamine. Vitamin C, vitamin C is involved in creating neurotransmitters that are needed to work with dopamine. And then B6 and magnesium. So low B6 is associated to poor memory, and low magnesium can be associated to low attention and focus. Combined, these two have been found in some articles to be useful at managing ADHD symptoms on some level. There are also some natural things or food that can worsen ADHD symptoms. So caffeine actually can decrease the efficacy of some stimulant medications. So if you're an individual with ADHD who takes stimulant meds, you wanna try and avoid caffeine at least for at first until you can see what the meds are doing, and then you can always reintroduce caffeine later. Caffeine can also trigger the anxiety response for people with ADHD who can run a little high already. The effects can be different in adults compared to children, but children should really not be taking caffeine. So hopefully that's not going on too often. Alcohol dampens the frontal lobe, which ADHD already does. So it can make the logic centers even less able to balance with the emotional impulses of the mind. So this leads to lower inhibitions, higher rates of addiction, obviously, of course, and then more dangerous behaviors and everything else that goes with alcohol use or overuse. Sodium or salts. There have been some studies that have shown that sodium benzoate can increase the symptoms of ADHD. And then sugar. This is mostly in children, but high sugar intake has been shown to increase the symptoms of ADHD significantly. So I'm not going to go over all these in too much detail. You can find these on my website. There is a presentation on ADHD, overview of ADHD. You can find that on the videos page for learning under the ADHD section. Currently it's on the front page. If you scroll down a little bit, you'll see two little bubbles. One says new video overview of trauma and one says new video overview of ADHD. And all of these are listed in that presentation so some adhd management tools um, just briefly there's something called sq3r this is a great tool to help you study and take in information so basically what you do is you survey question read recite review so survey scan the material notice any images or maps if they're there formulas whatever then Identify any questions that you want to answer if that's applicable, especially if it's like a school thing. If it's just you're reading a book for information-wise, like a novel or something, you don't necessarily need to scan if there's not images and things like that. And you don't need to identify questions because you're just wanting to know the information. But this is more of a school study technique. So survey all the information that you're supposed to read. Identify any questions that you want to answer beforehand or that you're supposed to answer then read a paragraph or just a chunk of information even if it's two sentences recite and summarize that paragraph or that chunk to yourself if you're able to summarize what you just read then you can move on to the next chunk if not then reread that chunk of information and try again at the end of doing this as you move through all the material read a chunk recite if you can recite what the information said read the next chunk if not reread After you do that, go back and review. Scan the material from front to back again, the images, the maps, the main points, because these will register and make more sense now that you've obtained that information. Looping music can be useful. Put on music that loops and does not include lyrics or any significant volume changes or beat changes, no crescendos. Video game music is often designed in this manner, so that's a good style of music to have on in the background. Have some kind of fidget support, so identify an item that you can use that dissipates energy. This supports focus if it has three main qualities. It needs to operate outside of your awareness. So it can't really take any kind of effort. It just needs to be like a clicker or something like that. It can't bother others around you. You can't be in class clicking a pin on and off, on and off. That would work great, except it's gonna drive other people crazy. So it needs to be something that doesn't bother others around you. And it also alerts you through your sensory. So it needs to be something that alerts you through touch or taste or smell or sight. There's the Pomodoro technique. You can download apps for this. Basically, traditionally, this is a 25-minute timer where you work on a task that you want to do. Then after that goes off, there's a five-minute timer where you do something else interesting. Color, shoot a basketball, play with a fidget toy, whatever. Just do something interesting and different for five minutes. Then come back and do another 25 minutes, and then another five minutes doing something interesting. And you just repeat until the task is finished or the predetermined deadline's met. People struggle with, with ADHD. They struggle with understanding things into the future. So just real simple, use something you can visualize. Use a calendar, a visual calendar. Use your phone with a calendar. And when somebody says, hey, we should do this on Friday, put it in your calendar immediately at the point of contact and put an alarm on there to remind you an hour before and 10 minutes before I do this. And then also another good benefit to this is you can brain dump it. You don't need to remember that you have a dentist appointment in two weeks on Friday at 3 p.m. Put it in your calendar and then dump it because otherwise you're going to be doing what's called a rehearsal loop. You're going to be spinning that information around in circles in your head and you can't pay attention to anything else because you're too busy trying not to forget. Brain dump as much as you can, free up that memory space. You want to disrupt things at point of contact. Put cues in place at the point of contact or the specific opportunity where the problem is likely to occur. When an individual has ADHD, it might take only a couple of seconds or minutes, or a couple of miles driving to forget a reminder that they just alerted themselves with. So an example, husband always forgets to do what the wife says. Have a reminder in your phone to alert yourself at the time or place of the needed behavior. Another example, daughter cannot focus in the classroom. Have her pair up with a classmate who is focused and helpful to support her in that time of situation, that point of contact where she struggles. Lastly, the big five, pests. We call them pests. Protein, exercise, support, task management, sleep. These are the big five areas identified by some of the professionals for managing ADHD. P, protein. Protein needs to be emphasized at every meal, every snack. Limit processed foods because the preservatives, food coloring, those things are associated with increasing ADHD symptoms. So limit processed foods and replace them with protein. Protein at every meal. E, exercise. As little as 10 minutes. Not exercise for fitness, exercise for brain health. It increases GABA, serotonin, dopamine, the things that balance mood, and these benefits last for hours. Next is S, support. Identify a team of supports in different settings. These individuals support you in areas where you experience deficits, right? At work, at home, in school. Identify people who can help you balance out those deficits that you have that are willing to support you in areas. T, task management. Have a list to place items that you do not want to forget to do. This keeps items out of your head and prevents that rehearsal loop. And you don't have to worry about forgetting them because you have them on your list. Then have a calendar that you can move the tasks to each week. So each week, look at your task list and move the things that are coming up with a due date or need to be, are the most important. Move them into the calendar for that week. Schedule them and then leave the other tasks alone. You can do them next week because they're not due this week. And last is S for pests, sleep. 24 hour chemical cycle is natural in the brain. You you have to have sleep at certain times or else you can mess with the cycle. So your GABA peaks around nine to 10 in the evening. So this is the time where you would be most likely to get tired. This is not exact. Serotonin peaks around six to 7 a.m. in the morning. Dopamine peaks at about 8 a.m. to noon. This is the best time to get work done and be creative. Now again, these are give or take, but this is the natural 24-hour chemical cycle of the human. Okay, you guys, some of it were probably said too fast. But this presentation that I have has all the information, and it is available on the website currently on the front page. And if you listen to this later, send me a notice, uh, or excuse me, send me a, a message on the website contact page, and ask me how to find it. if you can't, but it's going to be under the ADHD section under resources, videos, and it's going to be under the learn section of the videos. If you have any questions, please contact me. Let me know. I would be glad to answer anything that I can about ADHD. And if I don't know, I will find somebody who does and get you the um, appropriate answer from a credible source. If there's anything I said that you don't like, or maybe you have ADHD, and there was something that you didn't realize was part of that, or there's something that you think I didn't mention about ADHD that's important. I really would like for you to contact me and let me know so that I can update anyone um, that might be listening to this by adding a little extra piece to this or something, okay? So reach out to me at theanxiousmammal.com where there are free resources for ADHD and there are also free resources for anxiety and trauma. You guys are awesome. Shout out to an old friend from school. Mr. Nicholas Siegel, Nick, who introduced me to a couple of really cool bands. Yes, I still remember them. So Nick reached out to me on LinkedIn and voiced how appreciative he was of the information I was sharing, especially on ADHD, because he has some people that he cares about that are having to manage this um, diagnosis. So shout out to you, Nick. I uh, was gonna do this at some point, but it probably would have been a while. So because of you, I did it sooner. So thank you, buddy.